Snap, we're back in action. All right, everybody, welcome back to Hanging with Mr. Douglas. I'm Mr. Douglas, <laughs> and I am happy you are here. Updates, because it's been a little bit uh, full-time. Full-time voiceover work, very, very thankful for it. Doing lots of audiobook, doing uh, lots of interesting audio projects. Burner Face, check out Burner Face. Very cool. Very well put together. So much voice talent. Uh, all about the future. And what we're going through right now, we'll talk about crypto, but what we're going through right now is the beginning of a whole new way of living in the world and operating. And hopefully <laughs> it's going to be better for the majority of us. I think it will be. I got hope. And, uh, you know, with projects like Cardano, uh, I am very, very confident in that hope. Uh, definitely recommend looking into blockchain technology in general, uh, Cardano in particular, not financial advice, as you'll hear all over the place. But uh, I, I think we're on the precipice of some seriously amazing change that could go either way, because you got the digital yuan, the yuan, uh, China's digital currency, which looks to monitor every breath and step you take uh, and have full access to your funds. So when you do something they don't like, they'll take it away. If they do, if, if you do something that they do like, maybe they'll give you something as a little, uh, you know, carrot to the stick. But that is fundamentally not sovereign. You don't own anything. And I think ownership of one's self and uh, possessions is a very, very powerful tool for positive change when people, individuals, when we're all able to uh, participate via ownership of our data, our property, our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, all that stuff. Taking responsibility for all that stuff. And it's not easy. Oh, my goodness, it's not easy. But um, no pun intended, I think taking part in that kind of lifestyle will pay dividends. <laughs> Maybe it's a little intended. Anyway, uh, very, very happy to be here. Very thankful for the success that I've had throughout this year. It has been a life changer. Did not ever perceive that it would be like this, and I'm so very thankful to be here being able to do that. On top of that, I'm able to do this and talk about subject matter that I find absolutely fascinating. Today, we will begin a journey with Ingo Swan. I was first introduced to Ingo Swan when I first started digging around the Reddit R conspiracy channels and looking into government programs um, like um, the uh, Stargate program and MKUltra and all that fun stuff. Anyway, Ingo Swan and uh, Russell Targ, uh, along with others, came together and ran for a good amount of time um, Project Stargate, I believe, 
for the government. It was the uh, officially government-funded remote viewing project where Ingo Swan participated and then trained others in remote viewing. Remote viewing is a term that encompasses the idea of psychic ability, uh, clairvoyance, and extrasensory perception. However, remote viewing is a particular set of practice techniques that will inevitably open you and your perceptions up in a way that you would not normally experience uh, simply participating in regular old waking consciousness. The beginnings of all of this to recognize how real and fundamental it is, is that we've all had that gut feeling where somebody's going to call us. We have that intuition of, oh, I haven't thought about that friend in a little while, and boom, you get that ring-a-ding or email or text. Um, it has to do with that feeling of maybe I shouldn't get in the car right now. Maybe I should wait. Or maybe I should go now. Those instinctual feelings that don't seem to come from anywhere in our conscious perception, but bubble up from a more subtle space that we all are intimately connected to and connected with each other by. So Ingo Swan, let's see, I'll just uh, pull from the book. So basically what we're going to be doing here, Ingo Swan has a book called Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP. I might go through more than just one book, but I went to town on this one. I was inspired because I listened to the book Penetration, which if you haven't read it or listened to it, I can't recommend it enough. It is his personal account of being co-opted by a very secret government program to remote view the moon uh, and uh, what he ended up seeing in the several times that he remote viewed the moon and the experiences and adventure that he went on. Um, due to his uh, remote viewing the moon and what he saw there. Trippy stuff. And I'll, I'll give you a brief summary and give you some highlights. But listening to it, reading it, can't recommend it enough. If you are into somebody who really cared about understanding the how and the why of humanity's psychic, latent psychic talents, right, which is a, a misnomer already, because it seems to be intimately and fundamentally related to the electromagnetic and electrochemical makeup of what we are as living, information-producing, and assimilating, regurgitating beings. So I'll tell you that story really quick, but first, let me break it down here for you. Ingo Swan lived from 1933 to 2013. He was an American artist an exceptionally successful subject in parapsychological experiments. As a child, he had spontaneous numeroparanormal experiences, mostly out-of-body types, OBEs. Uh, he became really impassioned to study this and all parapsychological phenomena as he matured. In 1970, he began acting as a parapsychology test subject in tightly controlled laboratory settings with numerous scientific researchers. Because of the success of most of these thousands of test trials, Media worldwide in the 70s referred to him as the scientific psychic. His subsequent research on behalf of American intelligence interests, including that of the CIA, won him top psi spy status. His involvement in government research projects required the discovery of innovative approaches toward the actual realizing of subtle human energy. 
He viewed psi powers as only parts of the larger spectrum of human sensing systems and was internationally known as an advocate and researcher of the exceptional powers of the human mind. This dude's cool. And in this book, his book, Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, he breaks down his experience in realizing that, oh my goodness, yes indeed, extrasensory perception is real, it is innate, I've got it, I can get it better, and if I can, then you can too. And so this book is all about his experience in researching and understanding how he was able to begin that um, unfurling and unlocking process to gain deeper and deeper confidence, understanding, acceptance, and allowance of his innate ability. But before we go into that, let me break down penetration for you just right quick. So Ingo Swan, early on, artist, and I didn't know this, he wrote uh, 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 smutty books, living, living in New York City way back in the 70s. I mean, what a way to make it. Apparently, I've listened to a, a, a talk that he had given, uh, and he said that back in the 70s, you could write porno books and sell them to the mafia, and you would make, I think, 200 bucks a book. They had to be short. They had to be easily readable. You know, They had to get the job done. But if the mafia liked it, they'd be like, cool, do us another one and we'll give you a $200 check, no questions asked, bing, bang, boom. So he was able to live pretty comfortably writing, uh, you know, special alone time books. Or hey, enjoy them with a partner. I don't know. That's cool. But so he was able to do that. He was psychic and doing these experiments with various collegiate studies, uh, as well as the SRI, Stanford Research Institute, with Russell Targ basically put him on the radar of the government, and the CIA reached out to him in a really shady way. He got a bunch of phone calls with code names saying, hey, we're not having this phone conversation, but uh, would you be interested in pursuing this kind of research? Cool. Meet me at... He was in New York, so he got flown to D.C. where he sat down in the Smithsonian's Natural History Building, right? Meet me here. That's all he was given. You'll know when we reach out to you. Sit in front of this elephant picture and just chill. We'll reach out to you when we're ready. But we'll meet you there. Okay? I mean, what do you do? You're cool. You're experiencing some psychic success. You're living your life. You're having a good time. And all of a sudden, you get a call in a whole bunch of different coded words saying, meet me here, and we're going to go on an adventure. So he does. I don't know. I'd do it. Screw it. Although, I don't know. These days, does one trust the government? I would argue it's a healthy no. But even so, if they're running psychic uh, experiments and they're not strapping me in a Skinner box, hey, let's go for a ride. So anyway, he does. He goes to D.C., sits in front of this elephant painting, and then as he's sitting there, he's looking around, you know, nervous as shit, does, okay, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. He gets this flash in his mind of a business card, but the business card says something like, look to your right in clear letters. And he does. And there are these two dudes that look like twins standing there in classic CIA trench coat, fedora, and shitty 50s sunglasses, uh, looking incredibly out of place, but at the same time, completely forgettable. And he gets another flash and it says, follow us out. Get into this car. I'm paraphrasing big time here, but 
Anyway, he gets a series of flashes in his mind that tell him what to do. He gets in his car and he meets the dude who called him. And the dude says, hey, Ingo, I'm happy you came. Would you be willing to go a little bit further? He travels a whole bunch, like they put a bag over his head. He doesn't know where he's going or how he's getting there, but he ends up getting to this seemingly underground facility. And the guy who called him and set him up with this situation says, we want you to remote view uh, a latitude and longitude set of coordinates, and we want you to tell us what it is that you are viewing. He's like, uh, well, I mean, you know, how much are you going to pay me? And they end up hooking him up with like a, 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 you know, a really nice chunk of change as well as some sweet food. But he's in this underground facility for, uh, I think, two weeks to begin with. But he does it. He remote views. What he ends up figuring out himself is the moon. And on the moon, not only does he see clearly uh, uh, artificial structures, structures that were not made by nature alone because they look like towers, but he also remote views seemingly humanoid-type beings on the surface. And these humanoid-type beings recognized that somebody, something, was there viewing them. They sensed his presence and started moving toward where he was viewing them on the moon. And so, you know, long story short, he warps back. <laughs> he gets out of his remote viewing headspace and talks to the guy running the program and says, you are having me remote view the moon and there are people on there and they do not want us there. Am I wrong or am I right? And because he had the gumption to speak on what he thought was happening instead of just delivering the information that shut that program down, but uh, he got confirmation basically that he was right. But that was it, right? So he remote views the moon for, I think, about two weeks. There are beings there. There are structures there. Shit's going down on the moon when he remote views it, right? Not our shit, but some shit's going down on the moon. Remote views this stuff. The government program's like, ah, shit, you can't found us out. You gotta go. So they pay him. They give him a nice steak dinner and some cigars because he loves cigars. And they say, okay, so long. Peace. Don't ever tell anybody that we had this experience. This didn't happen. So he goes on. He's living, he's living his life. Screw it. I'm cool. I got this power. I'm, uh, you know, an artist. I'm having a good time. I'm going to go fly out to L.A., right, because he's in New York. He goes from his underground base back to D.C., back to New York. He's like, I'm going to go hang out with friends in L.A., forget about all this stuff, live my life. Months pass by, and he is in Los Angeles, hanging with friends, going shopping at the supermarket, picking out some produce, looking at the apples, and then all of a sudden, he gets this overwhelming sense to look up, and he does, and he sees this drop-dead, gorgeous woman looking right back at him. And he immediately has another very distinct impression that this woman is not from Earth, that she is an alien. She is an extraterrestrial, interdimensional. She's not from here. Boom, like clear as day in terms of him and his awareness and his ability to discern information coming from his psychic center. And wouldn't you know it, those two nondescript twins are in the same grocery store, dressed up looking like homeless hobos in different corners of the store, but both able to see this woman and Ingo 
And immediately upon recognizing the feeling he gets from this woman, he sees and senses the twins with their psychic business card projections. They send him one saying, don't look at us. Don't look at her. Please act normal. He goes, tries to act normal, goes back to his car, puts his grocery in the car and just kind of like slinks down in his seat. Like what just happened? It all came all at once. Boom, this hottie is an alien. Boom, the two dudes from the CIA are here watching her and telling me, don't act suspicious. And as he's kind of huddled in his driver's seat, taking a moment, she, in all her good looks, rolls her cart out, followed, uh, you know, slightly subtly by two CIA hobo dudes who are also psychic, monitoring her. This was back in the 70s? This was going down. I mean, that sounds like straight out of MIB, doesn't it? But that apparently, hey, and Ingo Swan did not like universally benefit in terms of being a bajillionaire off of these experiences that he put into his books. I have no reason to distrust what he has to say about his experience. Fascinating experiences. So anyway, story's not over. Really quick. Uh, he get months go by. He had that experience. Whoa, what's going on with existence? What is happening here? Another call from a dude who set up the experiment from a long time ago where he viewed the moon. Hey, I can give you some confirmation, but I can't tell you. I'm going to have to show you. Are you ready for another trip? So black bag over the head, gets on a plane, able to smoke some cigars, but flies. He doesn't know where. He's describing the environment, really tall pines, mountainous area, and in the distance over a ridge, there's what looks to be a kind of mountainous lake. He assumes it's Alaska. We don't know. But this dude who's running the program rides with him in this plane, along with the two twins, right? He says, I'm going to show you confirmation. I can't tell you anything, but I can show you. And you're just going to have to accept what I show you as confirmation enough. So, okay, here we go. They get out the plane. It's like pre-dawn, chilly. You can see your breath. And the dude who's running the program says, you got to be super quiet. Don't breathe because they'll know you're here. And of course, they'll know I'm here. Who are they? And then this cloud of smoke starts seemingly from a speck in the air above the middle of this mountain lake. But it grows, and lightning starts to streak outside from it, and grows, and rumbles, and grows, and out of this cloud of lightning and smoke comes this massive, triangular spaceship. That is... And I... You have to forgive me. I remember them kind of blowing up animals and chunks of tree and earth and dirt around them while siphoning water from the lake. And this is when the dude who was running the experiment said, hey, you got to be super quiet, otherwise they're going to know we're here and they're going to blow us up. Because they're like, any kind of living being, we're just, we're hearing this craft just blowing animals up throughout this forest near this lake while they're siphoning up water from this lake surrounded by this cloud. And at one point, one of the uh, uh, explosions happens very close. They have to roll and dodge and duck underneath a, a dead tree log, and Ingo hurts himself. Thankfully, he saves his cigars. 
But they fly him back, and that was his confirmation that yes, ETs do exist, they are visiting here, and they have great interest apparently in popping off some wildlife and sucking mountain lakes down. I don't know, we don't know, but what a high strangeness story. I loved it. And it made me very interested to see what else Ingo Swan had put together. And in fact, he has put together a nice chunk of information when it comes to understanding, opening yourself up to, and practicing at least the beginnings of tapping into your psychic core. And that's what this book is, Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, Unlocking the Extrasensory Power of Your Mind. Loved it, chewed through it, highlighted the hell out of it, and so that's what we're going to talk about next. The goal of this podcast is to open up the edges of our minds to realize a broader, deeper, stronger kind of active perception and participation in our experience of living. I think the more we do that, the better chance we have in moving in a more positive direction for us individually and all of humanity. I don't know about you, but I'm getting kind of tired of what is being advertised as the direction the world is going in. And again, I don't know about you, but I know that I look at my fellow humans and in spite of the wild year and three quarters we've had, that we desperately want connection. We want to love each other and be understood and be successful. Be successful for each other. To provide each other with value. I want to do something good that people can enjoy and, and do something else with if they want. I want to do something that's going to make somebody's life a little bit better in some way. And I think you do too. I think in the end, yes, it would a when Lambo. When are we going to get our Lambos? I don't give a shit about that. I don't, I, you know, if you do, cool, great. I do give a shit about being able to live a life without stressing about everything all of the time. I do give a shit about meeting my fellow human beings and being able to just say, hey, what's up? What are you working on? Cool. That's great. Want to grab a beer? Tell me more. And the suggestion, do you want to sit down and have a beer? There wouldn't be a, ooh, do I have time? Ooh, can I afford it? Ooh, is that going to be okay for me? Ooh, is my health going to be able to handle that? There's so much that we've got to take into account now when it just comes to pleasant interaction and communication. I'm ready for that to shift so that I can go to my fellow human being and say, hey, what you're doing sounds really cool. I'd love to know more. Let's go have a beer, maybe some sweet potato string fries, as I like the thin ones, and garlic salt on them. And let's, let's talk about it, because I, I would love to be able to be a part of something if I can help something I believe in. Ooh, how very exciting. And so I think that's where we're going. Uh, again, before I just hit this book, a lot of things are happening in the cryptocurrency world. I definitely recommend that you take a look because a store of value uh, that is um, deflationary by its very design, Bitcoin, uh, in my humble opinion, is going to be very valuable in the coming years because we have central governments with fiat currency, printing, a lot, a lot, a lot. I'm sure you hear it all the time in the news, so I won't belabor the point. Do your own research, not financial advice. Owning 
assets that have value will provide humanity with the next step in how we each individually become sovereign and how through our individual sovereignty can collectively get together to benefit each other. But being poor and coming together as a collective seems to put the masses both at an advantage and disadvantage. Because no matter what, the ones who are making the bread, who are printing the money that you have to buy the bread with, uh, are, are going to be the ones making the rules. And if we don't have to play by the rules set up by a system that doesn't have our best interests at heart, that's a really good thing. Then we have the opportunity to make a system, a parallel system, a system that can grow in a virtuous cycle rather than a vicious cycle for the betterment of everybody. Cryptocurrency, worth taking a look at. Take a look at some DAOs, too. Olympus DAO, research it. For those of you on the Phantom blockchain, perhaps Hector DAO. Diatom DAO for show. And, of course, Wonderland Time, research it. There will be many more to come. It is only the beginning. We are still very early. Don't think you've missed the boat. Most of the boats haven't even been made yet. Take a look for yourself. And a great way to take a look at the world is with a fresh set of perceptive lenses, which we will address, or begin to address, right now. Here we go. All right. Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP. So, before we get into the basics, I'll just summarize the super beginning part. Here he is doing a whole bunch of different practices different experiments with different collegiate programs. And all the time it's in a lab and he's strapped up to a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, um, brain sensors. And every time what they basically, it all boils down to this. They put him in a chair uh, and above him, kind of hanging from the ceiling, is a tray suspended. And on the tray are a series of items. And he can't see the items. He's, you know, below the tray. The experiment runners ask him, what do you see in the tray? Please, re remote view or leave your body at the time they were, that remote viewing wasn't coins. So they said, go ahead and have an out-of-body experience, leave your body and astrally project to the ceiling. Tell us what it is that you see. Tell us what it is that you see. And he would always have a hard time. He'd get some partial successes, but it would be, and he would have, he'd be like, I, I would feel the sensation of me energetically kind of separating from my physical body, my awareness would leave and I would be able to, in a kind of warpy dreamlike way, get some kind of perception of what was up there. But he would run into, consistently, consistently run into roadblocks when he would be recorded on a, on a cassette tape. Uh, and they would ask him, you know, go ahead, tell us what it is that you see. So we would have to perceive it and then... Another part of his brain would have to come in and say, Oh, I know what that is. That's uh, an avocado, or that's a cigarette, or a lighter, or a 7-Up can, or, you know, any, it, a different part of his brain had to be activated. And that part of his brain seemed to continuously get in the way of him being able to convey the information, which he was receiving. I mean, he was actually viewing something without his five basic senses. 
successfully. It was the conveying of that information that was getting all gummed up, both for himself and to convey it to others. So at one point in these experiments he was going through, he was just fed up and said, hey, you know what, can I just draw it? Instead of me just dictating to you what's happening, because it seems to just really mess me up, can I just draw it? Can I give you a little doodle? Can I draw it for you? Oh, sure, Ingo, okay, go ahead. And so he did. And he was able to draw with such incredible accuracy what he had viewed that it was a complete success. He was buzzing the entire way home, and it was only until he reached the subway from his uh, experiment in New York City that he was participating in, that he got that shock of realization. Holy shit, I'm psychic, and this is real. This is actually a real thing. There is psychicness out there. It's real, and I'm part of it. And that was a huge life-changing moment for him. And from there, he said, okay, I got this confirmation, this strong confirmation from this experience of not engaging with my categorizational mind, my conscious mind, organizing and categorizing and naming. I removed that portion of the process and instead went right to doodling it, which for him and for others, as we will soon find out, bypasses the analytical portion of our minds in a way that allows this information to come through a lot cleaner, a lot smoother, a lot easier. It is an allowance. And in this book, which I definitely recommend you take a look at if you're interested in this kind of stuff, he breaks down throughout history how in the uh, 1800s and early 1900s, these picture-drawing clairvoyance experiments from Germany to France to the U.S. and England were being run with huge success. And it was, uh, it's funny, Rudolf Steiner says the same thing. World War I put the kibosh on almost all of this kind of work. And it wasn't until the uh, 60s and 70s when the CIA found out that Russia, the USSR at the time, was running experiments with psi phenomena, uh, which they called uh, bioenergetic fields. And they were way ahead of the game. The U.S. was like, oh, we got to figure out what they're doing. What are they doing? So it wasn't as, as if they were like, we're going to figure out how to be psychic and create psychic spies. They were just trying to figure out what the hell the Russians were figuring out as to whether or not they were figuring out anything in particular that was going to be valuable. And so through many of these different experiences uh, and experiments that Ingo Swam was going through, he was noticed and tapped to eventually run the CIA's psychic spy program. Project Stargate. The Men Who Stare at Goats is based somewhat off of a portion in time of that program. And it's a fun movie. But this shit's real. And Ingo likes to make a couple of points, which I will reiterate quickly here. It's real and it's universal. It's within us all. Because through his research of looking at all of these people going through these picture drawing programs, uh, people who were doing lifelong experiments who had made it their profession, and little kids who had just started doodling themselves all had the same kind of basic experience, both in um, struggling to accurately depict what it was that they were uh, viewing, as well as the successes. So this is something, and, and the process is innate within, within all of us. 
And it starts with understanding how, in a general way, our whole system, our energetic system, our bioenergetic system, handles information that's coming from this substrate of consciousness. It's like a, it's the Akashic field, uh, uh, the psychic ocean that we're all connected to. It's understanding that information comes from there on the reg and how best to allow that information to enter into our waking conscious experience and how not to grab it and try to define it and mold it and shape it and call it something when you don't really know exactly what it is to begin with. And if you only allowed the information more space to express itself, the potential for understanding and connection is, well, limitless. So we all have it. It's all there. You, we have the dude who ran the CIA spy pro, psychic spy program saying this, right? Through his, and it's a lot of research. He, he did a lot of historical research. So this is real and it's in all of us. We're all psychic. Boom. Understand that. He likes to describe it, the whole system of perception from conscious to preconscious, as a kind of mound of awareness. So basically, if you can imagine in your mind a kind of picture of uh, the sky on the top, then you have the Earth's surface with a little bump or a mound, right? And you got a couple of bushes around the mound. You got some birds flying around the bushes. Maybe there's a tree there and a squirrel, right? That's the top part. So you got sky, you got Earth kind of top with a mound, whoop, some trees and some bushes. So the sky is basically waking awareness. That's you walking down the street going, okay, there's a car, and that's a fall leaf falling from a tree. How pretty, how nice. That's your, your kind of waking aware. I'm hungry, maybe I'll stop at the shop, pick up an apple. My fingers feel chilly because it's cold outside. I can see my breath. I can smell someone's fireside. I hear the crisp wind blowing through the piles of leaves. All that stuff, right? That is waking conscious perception. And so, if the sky is that kind of waking conscious perception understanding, the top of the earth and the mound is our waking conscious perception mechanism. It's the stuff that says, oh, that's the wind blowing. Oh, that's the fire smelling. Oh, those are the leaves. Ooh, that's the chill in the air. Like, that's what the top of the earth is. But underneath the top of the earth, right, still at mound, you have another chunk, another layer of perception. And that's our history, our emotions, our interior life, our waking interior life, and what we associate with the moments that we experience internally. So you got all of that. And then underneath that, now, okay, underneath that, you have the preconscious stuff. The Akashic field, like a water aquifer, ever-present, flowing, and reaching everything that is above it, but is low enough, buried deep enough, that it isn't recognized consciously. It is in the subconscious or unconscious or preconscious area of our perceptual bioelectromagnetic 
system of perception and understanding. Right? So you got that under, underwater aquifer. Now, this underwater aquifer has this kind of uh, channel, right? That shoots up to and through the mound where it reaches the bushes and the trees and the squirrels and the birds and bubbles up, right? But as it bubbles up, it's going through all of the other levels that we talked about. So that emotional interior level, it's got to go through. Then it's got to go through that top layer where all of our senses are. And then, only then, does it reach the sky-type air area where we might get a trickle or a bubble of a brook, whereas its origin, its base, is this massive aquifer that is ever-present and always there. All that we are able to every so often experience is a muddy puddle or a bubbling brook, if we're lucky. So that's a kind of, you know, and I, I paraphrased, and, uh, but that, that is a kind of basic breakdown of how he would like to describe our perceptual landscape. And the idea that he presents is that we're all connected to that aquifer. That aquifer is always giving us information, pumping it up to the higher levels of awareness and consciousness. It's those levels that we are always interacting with. And for the most part, I'll admit, sure, for a long time, I thought, and I'm sure lots of people thought, uh, that that was it. That's all that we are. Dreams are nothing but regurgitations of the mind's experiences. And when you die, you die, and that's it. <clears throat> Bullshit. But for a long time, that's what everybody thought. Or at least that's what has become the acceptable norm kind of base layer level of acceptable thinking in the world. And again, <clears throat> bullshit. But to have those cultural misconceptions so deeply ingrained generation after generation after generation, and at a societal level as well, it's going to cause a lot of, no, that wasn't psychic. I don't believe that. No, that couldn't have happened. That Well, that's just, that doesn't exist, so that's not real. It's going to create a lot of that. Oh, I'll, you second-guess yourself. Or you ignore it completely because that can't happen because that's not a part of your worldview. So how could you have that information? How could you know your friend was going to call you even though you just had that perception pop up into your mind from out of nowhere? How could you know not to step into the road when that car was careening down the street? Must have just been luck. Happenstance. But in fact, according to Ingo Swan, and I would argue this experience as well, we are all intimately and always connected to that ever-present aquifer of the Akashic field. And it's about giving space and allowing a more relaxed and open mindset, mind frame, for that information to pass through the layers of perception that we have. And according to this book and Ingo Swan's life, we can absolutely do this. We all have this innate ability. We can train it pleasantly in a fun way and get better at this. And starting this will open up so many more doors and experiences and adventures of awareness that we can't 
possibly imagine just yet. But we sure can try, which is why I'm here. And so, let's see, before we hit to the uh, fun stuff. Now there's some pictures, there's some good diagrams, some dioramas that he's uh, put together, which I will certainly take a picture of and put in the show notes and accompanying blog. So, okay, we're going to get started with the uh, seventh chapter in this book, The Self-Generating Processes of the ESP Core. But what we're going to be thinking about in kind of uh, a way to understand the information he's providing is the experiment that he was participating in, which was how I had described it earlier. So you are attempting to perceive information that is not immediately available to your five senses. Remote viewing. In these experiences, it's somebody has drawn a very rudimentary picture of a horse or a face or a letter and has put it in another room in an envelope. And people are charged with attempting to see what that image is without seeing the image. And that is kind of a, a just a kind of breakdown and a basic understanding of how this kind of mechanism works. And so we begin. One of the first points he makes, which I think is super important, is no amount of conscious concentration on the target will get this kind of information for you. You can't just focus. Okay, I'm psychic now. What is it? What's in the envelope? What is it? What is it? What is it? Doing that is only going to get in the way because that is accessing the conscious mind, the categorizing, naming, and information organizing mind, the waking mind. Because here's the thing, and he makes this point, the information that we're trying to perceive has already been processed pre-consciously. And according to him, much of human awareness derives from pre-conscious processes that are hidden from the light of waking conscious thought and control. Now, there are two aspects to this awareness, the conscious processes and the pre-conscious processes, which normally operate in non-conscious areas of the mind. Between the non-conscious and consciousness, lies a band referred to as the subliminal threshold through which incoming preconsciously processed information emerges into consciousness. You know, like I was describing before, the aquifer, the layers of the earth. He says, if we think about this and the fact that the ESP core can accurately construct and process psychic information, we can understand that any impedance we may encounter will come from erroneous, conscious misinterpretation. So it's our conscious self getting in the way of this information. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely put these diagrams out. This is great. They're great to look at. I dog-eared them. So he goes on to say, the incoming psychic information traveling through its pre-conscious processing area, where it probably gathers its general form, also has got to pass through a creativity process that allows the individual to participate with it in a creative sense. It's probably at this level of interaction that the psychic information acquires a good deal of its noise. The creativity channels are closely connected to a multitude of analytical thought processes, the emotions of the individual and the visionary elements of his or her dreams, preoccupations, and education, that interior life stuff area level that I was talking about before. The psychic information has got to pass through that too. So the psychic information pops up through these multifarious channels It's easy to see how it can become impeded with other mind elements. He goes on to say, I think that creativity and pre-conscious processing are very closely related 
ESP is very closely associated with creativity and pre-conscious processing. But it can also get in the way. Creativity, talent, and extrasensory perception can be assisted and built upon consciously, but only after the essential, natural, internal factors have become clear to consciousness. So the result of these unconscious processes rises into consciousness, where it is compared to conscious perceptual materials. Normally, the output would be an amalgam of all of these, but psychic information, to be unimpeded, cannot become such an amalgam. It can't keep all the stuff that it has attempted to have glommed onto when our mind goes, ooh, I know what that round shape that's coming through is. That's a baseball. Ooh, I know what that bright thing is. It's a light bulb. Like, it's that, ooh, I know what it is. Ooh, ooh, I know what it is. That, to me, when I, when I practice this stuff, when I play around with attempting to exercise my preconscious perception, I can sense when I'm starting to get a little tingle of something like, oh yeah, something's coming through. My mind is, oh, I know what that is. I know what that is. It's a pool. Ooh, ooh, I know what that is. Ooh, it's a car. My conscious mind, and it makes sense. He goes into this. The conscious mind immediately wants to get involved to identify and categorize something. And from an evolutionary standpoint, that is how we have been so successful in living and, you know, making offspring is because we've been able to have a very efficient mind machine look at something and go, is that a threat? Can I eat it? Is that okay? Like that, <laughs> that thing with a rattle and fangs, should I eat it? Is it going to be friendly? No, I don't think so. Have you guys ever come across like a snake just in the wild recently? Uh, living in Colorado, uh, I used to go biking on a bike path. And uh, every summer on the bike path, snakes, rattlesnakes would just sprawl out in the middle of the bike path to soak up the sun and the heat that would, you know, they'd be baking. And, oh man, I, I was just walking one day and I was not paying attention. I was getting in the zone with me, uh, with my music. And I looked down and it looked like there was some fat crack in the uh, pavement. And before I consciously recognized, ooh, snake, my whole body pushed itself backward. I jumped back before recognizing what it was because my body, before I became conscious of it, recognized it as a threat. That snake was a potential threat evolutionarily. I have had ancestors that were awesome because they responded to that sensation of, ooh, don't go over there. And now I'm here. Thank you, ancestors. You kick ass. But that, I mean, that is evolutionarily baked into us to have a system even before we are able to go, hmm, it's rattling and it looks like a snake. That's probably a snake. Even before we're able to consciously go through all of that, our whole system goes, ah, snake, watch out. And so we've got to simultaneously understand that system, but have that system when we're in the right set and setting kind of move out of the way or at least delay its participation. And, you know, that, that's been one of the things that has been fun to experiment with, albeit I have not been incredibly successful with this, but still uh, the ability to give attention to the thought before the words fill the thought. That, that is uh, an experience 
that I enjoy cultivating. And uh, I think that has a lot to do with what he's talking about here. So here we go. The results of these unconscious processes rise into the consciousness where it is compared to conscious perceptual materials like we were just talking about. Normally, the output would be an amalgam of these. We just talked about that, right? But psychic information to be unimpeded cannot be such an amalgam. We need to consider this when we can see that ESP is trying to work, but is also malfunctioning. The malfunctioning is taking place in one or more of these areas, each of which is serving to impede or degrade the accuracy of the ESP information. To my knowledge, ESP has never been addressed as an internal self-creating attribute whose natural needs must be ascertained and which must not be approached on the basis of a predetermined series of expectations. He'll go farther into this cultivation of ESP in an artistic performance. For every art, an appropriate craft is designed. And as more is learned about the art, the craft develops accordingly. In my personal experience, when it comes to acting, uh, that is absolutely the case, where the art is experienced first and practiced and explored, and then shortly after, along comes a craft or a method of engaging with the art in a way that can, if practiced, I don't want to say correctly, but practiced consciously and with the desire to become more efficient and efficacious with the art, if you do it that way, you're going to get better. So, all right, fun little basic introduction. Chapter 8, he starts talking about picture drawings in particular. The first phenomena of the ESP core. We will have better luck if we consider a similar enigma that is pertinent to our ESP problem, which comes first, mental images or mental words. The reason we can have better luck is that we have individual and personal experience as well as art and science to help us out. And spoiler alert, the image comes before the word. Beneath the language system is the world of mental images, the thought before the word. And imaging is a cross-cultural language possessed by all humans. Basic imaging occurs long before words are learned to describe those images. Imaging, then, is closer and more intimately connected to the psychic nucleus and the ESP core. Words, word language, gets in the way, more often than not. He goes on to say, but all the evidence points to the fact that when you are first trying to contact your own basic ESP core, it's more progressive to undercut the difficulties imposed by languaging and allow the basic imaging processes to provide the first and most natural work. Subjects are asked to describe in words what they are seeing. They are hardly ever asked to draw their responses, which, as we had discussed briefly before, kind of bypasses the uh, language-ish. He goes on, The innate ability and desire to externalize images is very important as a whole, and we now see of primary importance to the essential basic language and ESP experience. Throughout the book, he references kids and doodling and how even before we have a, a big enough vocabulary to describe what it is that we're drawing, we're able to draw it. And I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a kid, I really wanted to draw well. Uh, I don't. I enjoy it. I really enjoy the process, but I don't draw well. However, I remember drawing all the time and just enjoying that creative, generative experience of just drawing. 
And so he talks about how that, that level of expression is definitely tied to expression of the ESP core. He goes on, the new hypothesis in physics that in the second reality, all information is available in some sort of perpetual wave form, the aquifer of Akasha, all a developed psychic needs is a point of focus, at which time, if all other things go well, he or she can attune to the information. That's interesting. Focus and attunement. I, I like attune better than focus. Focus calls into mind that singular kind of zoned-in focus, which is not really what we're after. But attuning to a wavelength that will provide information, that makes a lot of sense. The next step is to let the psychic nucleus do the work it's cut out to do without involving it in the misinterpretation that can occur in conscious manipulation of incoming psychic information. And I highlighted and underlined this part. The fundamental point to be drawn is that there exists in all of us a basic but undeveloped function. Our ESP core works automatically if we can but learn to allow it to do so. That takes me right back to uh, conservatory training. Bill Burnett, an amazing acting teacher, had some sage wisdom when he said, one of the most difficult things you'll ever have to do in life is let something happen. Let yourself feel, go, experience, wait. To let seems incredibly counterintuitive to the go, 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 manifest, make, force, move, do something to make something happen. But it's very Wu Wei, which we've talked about here before, to let something happen, to simply get out of the way of our ESP core and let it do what it do. And so we will move on and uh, hopefully we will all get a little bit better at that as we discuss this and practice this further. If the conscious mind tries to dominate the incoming psychic information, it can obliterate it. Again, I know what that is, it's a pool. Be quiet, conscious mind, it's not your turn yet. The book is really cool. Again, I definitely recommend it. Ingo Swan, everybody's got a natural ESP because he's got a lot of uh, copies of drawings from the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s showing us that these experiments have been going on for a long time. This was a side note uh, that I underlined, but I thought was interesting just in a current affairs sense tied with the idea that, you know, we have a media that increasingly wants us to think a certain way, not deliver information for us to think freely on. Um, this is pertinent because if we are all psychic and we all have the opportunity to take advantage and enjoy a broader, deeper, more awesome understanding of perception, if we're unaware of how we actually operate, those that have a greater awareness might take that opportunity to exert influence on us without us even being aware of it. And while I believe that you are an amazing, wonderful human being, I also am fairly certain that there are um, birds of every color in this realm of existence. And some of those birds, for one reason or another, 
That's, you know, we go deep dive into that for another day, but for one reason or another might not have altruistic intentions or agendas. They very well might have the mindset that the only way they are able to succeed is through subjugation of other. However they got to that point, I don't know. But I definitely think that there's an increasing exposure of that kind of thinking and doing in our modern society. And I say all that to preface this, which Ingo has written in his book. He says, today, it is a well-understood tactic of mind manipulation. And this was written in the 70s. Well-understood tactic of mind manipulation that if an unknown and unresolvable guilt can be established among a group of people, such as parapsychologists represent, that group can be controlled and subdued. As long as the target group accepts the possibility that the guilt might be true in some ways, it remains introverted and creatively unproductive. All its resources go into trying to resolve the guilt that does not exist in the first place. Take that for what you will. But that's Ingo Swan in the 70s saying that uh, my manipulation definitely happening. And so it behooves us to be more aware of all this good stuff so that we can take our lives into our own hands on a whole other level and experience joy and pleasure and the amazing moment-to-moment living that we all absolutely deserve to experience. Some bullet points here at the end of chapter 8. We are justified in thinking that an ESP core exists in all individuals. The picture-drawing method actually obtains more precise information about a hidden target then does the wording method, which is fraught with inaccuracies and misinterpretation. Not to mention, struggle to understand what some of these words mean. <laughs> it's funny when I say a word and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I think I know what that word means, but this person is looking at me like, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to go, ha, 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 and smile, and hopefully they do the same so that they know I'm not a complete idiot. Last bullet point, by comparing the bulk of picture drawings, we can begin to categorize the preconscious processes that are taking place, and learn to improve our conscious perception and reception of ESP information by observing the apparent difficulties the information undergoes as it tries to reach consciousness. In the next chapter, chapter 9, Ingo goes on to discuss in great detail remarkable picture drawings and what we can discern from these picture drawings. I mean, the dude goes way back in the literature, way back. So, a dynamic shift of focus in the central process has taken place. The focus has left the psychic information itself and turned it into a focus somewhere in the mind, which is attempting to correlate the information with something known. That's when our imagination and our inner lived experiences and perceptions start to get in the way and go, I know what it is. I, 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 I mean, uh. Many of you will enjoy focusing on your own ESP core and producing results that are similar to those given here. What we are after is an activation of the ESP core in you. It is only through this method that a new age in ESP can emerge where it belongs in the hands of the people who are courageous enough to take the plunge. And if you're here with me, just listening to this podcast, I would argue, is uh, courageous enough. Thanks. I'm really happy you're here. Oh, these pictures are great. And it's what's really cool. Here's one from 1929. This dude, the target was a very rudimentary and pretty janky drawing of, uh, you know, scales. You know, just scales with the handle and the pillar in the middle with the scales. The response, 
looks cleaner than the actual drawing, and it looks good. Some of this is just a squiggle in two lines, and they get really close. It's fascinating. Yeah, definitely recommend it. I'll put some of these pictures online, too. But Ingo goes on. From all that is possible to see, that the raw ESP core, though capable of spontaneous high-stage accurate ESP, is nevertheless subject to other mental functions. The individual's mental patterns often intrude, using plain guessing as to what the target might be. So the subject identifies not the target, but extraneous elements going on in their head. I know what it is, it's a pool. <laughs> the adverse phenomenon is referred to in modern parapsychology as noise, like several radio signals, converging over the same frequency. If any of you have meditated, you know that noise, you know that monkey mind, that chatter that just kind of gets in the way. It's there all the time. And it makes me think about the Aborigines of Australia that have given such prime attention to dreams and the mental faculties that go into understanding and consciously interacting with that level of perception. They, I bet, I would, I would bet cryptos that um, the Aboriginal mind is a lot more still and is able to call upon mental faculties without all the added extra goop that might go along here in the West. Tibetan monks too, yo-yo. Last bit from chapter 9, the noise or the malfunctions are identical in all the individuals who attempted numerous ESP tests. This shows that we all have identical mental levels through which the incoming ESP information can be processed or misprocessed. When you try your own experiments, it will be the partial results that will teach you the most about your own core ESP. And that was really a, a, a pleasant and repeated message that comes through in this book. Hey, don't worry about getting it right or getting it wrong. That's not really important for a long time. What is important is getting results, analyzing the results, and comparing them with uh, the information in this book particularly, but in general with other results so that you can see, because we all have uniform levels which the incoming ESP information is processing through, you can see through the results that you're getting, okay, where did it get gummed up? I have the image of a sailboat in front of me that I was supposed to use, but over here it's a kite and there's a whole bunch of water and a straw. Well, what was, okay, I can okay, the kite is, all right, I mean, it's, but you can start to put it together and go, oh, I can see where my mind went, now it's a straw, it's a pool, it's a pool. So this is exciting. This is a step-by-step a, a -step way to engage, open up to, experience, and legit train your ESP core to go, ha-ha, let me give you some information about this. Watch out, there are aliens in the supermarket. All right, we're in chapter 10 now, the influence of disbelief and trusting the deeper self. I mean, that, the title says it all, it's important. So trusting the deeper self, getting along with one's peers and making it in life require mental self-discipline in several areas. Mental self-discipline is the factor that brings one into phase, into coherence, with whatever one wishes to take part in and succeed in doing. We all remember the kid that 
would just yell all the time in class, not understanding that raising your hand or speaking in an indoor tone would get them so much more far in life as well as with friends in class. There are probably many types of self-discipline. Four seem to be important for the purposes of this book. Discipline is a product of training, of focusing, of experience, and of intuition. So a product of training, focusing, experience, intuition. Self-discipline. Okay. Any achieved creator, artist, inventor, ecologist, business person, whatever, has intuitively learned to cut through the rubbish and contact the core. The creativity core seems to work on its own and works best without too much deliberate intervention by our patterns of consciousness. To accommodate the elements and needs of the creativity core and to discipline the elements of consciousness that might tend to interfere with it is what the achieved creator is learning, learned, and putting into practice. High-stage creativity, what the artist or inventor has learned, is basically to allow the core to function without imposing rational consciousness upon it to any detrimental degree. So it's basically getting out of your own way. How many times have we heard that message? Just get out of your own way. But it's, I mean, in this case in particular, and in life, hey, it seems like this core, which is referenced as many different things, magical circles, it's your... Uh, um, High Guardian Angel, your HGA, both Neville Goddard and Joseph Murphy talk about all this stuff. I mean, among countless others, this kind of idea of a basic core that we just need to get out of the way of, that is feeding us information all the time, this is uh, universal. And here we just have another way to discuss and engage with that universal core within ourselves. Ingo goes on. Louis de Broglie, Louis de Broglie, remarked that intuition enables us to perceive all at once some profound aspect of reality by a kind of inner light that has nothing to do with laborious, deductive schemes consciousness might wish to impose. The French chemist Louis Pasteur is uh, quoted here saying, The more valuable notions that the human mind possesses are all in darkness, in the background. If we were cut off from this background, the exact sciences themselves would be stripped of the greatness which derives from the secret affinity between them and other truths of infinite scope that we are beginning dimly to apprehend, and which constitute a link with the mystery of creation. Louis Pasteur, thanks for the milk. So Ingo goes on, the developed psychic has learned to do this intuitively, switch gears, so to speak to shift focus from consciousness to a communion with his or her deeper self and the elements of the psychic nucleus and its ESP core. In other words, the developed psychic creates an unimpeded pathway from the deeper self to conscious awareness in which the incoming psychic information can be perceived with relative clarity. That seems to be one of the major goals in any kind of spiritual practice, whether it's uh, with ceremonial magic, with uh, that new age drip, training your intuition, in consulting any kind of uh, divinatory uh, medium like rolling dice or tarot cards, runes, it is shifting from consciousness to communion. That's pretty cool. 
So what does that feel like? And I think that is the question that I am continuously attempting to engage with. What does it feel like in that space? Because I know what waking consciousness feels like, and sometimes it feels like shit. But when we meditate, when we quiet, and we give space and open ourselves to ourselves, it's that shift and that feeling that we can then attune to. Ingo goes on, in psychic parlance, this is often referred to as focusing. But focusing is only one half of the picture. Focusing should mean to bring into alignment the elements of consciousness that are necessary to create the pathway or aperture through which the psychic information travels upward to conscious perception. The other half of the situation involves establishing a communion between the deeper self and the self as a whole. If what advanced physicists and thinkers are hypothesizing is true, that the deeper self is already interconnected to universal information, as discussed earlier in this book, then the deeper self doesn't need to be developed or focused. It needs only to be afforded the opportunity to deliver. We can see that ESP does not go on in consciousness. Extrasensory perceptions environment lies in those areas beneath consciousness where psychic information is pre-processed and emerges in a completed form. Anyone interested in contacting their ESP core now has to turn his or her attention to the pre-conscious processes and those elements of consciousness that are likely to degrade correct transmission of the incoming psychic information. As it turns out, picture drawings are an excellent way of doing this. One of the good things we can say about consciousness is that it can learn, provided it can be made to understand exactly what it is supposed to learn. Your own picture drawings will show the way. All right, my wonderful people, we will leave it there for today. We will continue on. Where you know, we're, well, I'll probably just be one more episode on this particular Ingo Swan book, but I think it would be fun to play around with this kind of process with you. So we'll, we'll talk about it more in detail, more in depth uh, next episode. But just a simple, enjoyable practice of seeing what I may have drawn and you drawing it. And then, you know, us going back and forth saying, hey, what'd you draw? So that's cool. That's what I do. We could very well help each other build a kind of pleasant feedback education system for each and every one of our own psychic cores, gently training them into more full expression and in the process expressing ourselves more fully. Well, I'm so happy I'm back in the saddle. I'm happy to be here with you. Hey, happy holiday time. Uh, if you're experiencing the holiday time at the moment, but happy time here in general, just experiencing this with me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for hanging. I'll catch you on the next one. All right.